Hi everyone and welcome to the Perma Podcast. I am James Prescott, your host. Great to have you back on the get back with us today. Um, I'm really excited about the guest we have with us today. Um, she is a counsellor. Um, she's done a bit of writing and she does a lot of work with therapy in churches. Um, so welcome uh, Kristen Kansevich to the show. If that's if that's right. <laughs> Yeah, pretty close, conservative. Excellent. I'm really, really glad I got that almost right. That's, <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. I'm really glad to, uh, that you're here. Um, yeah, you do some really amazing work. So I'm gonna, we're going to kind of explore that today. So just tell us a bit about the work you do and your kind of your journey into that. Sure. Yeah. Um, well, I came on staff at my church as a counselor in 2005, and. Um, Originally, I think we kind of ended that that would result in long-term kind of establishing some kind of counseling center or maybe a separate entity from the church. Um, but as things progressed and evolved in ways we didn't necessarily anticipate, we started to see some value in the ways that we were naturally um, collaborating as with the pastors and me as a counselor, really working together um, with the clients that we were serving. Of course, you know, the clients were, you know, signing authorizations to allow us to do that. They were participating in that process. And actually, one of the things I was surprised by was that clients were very, not just willing or like, you know, reluctantly signing a form, but like excited about the idea that, you know, the people that they trusted in their lives cared about and talked to about important things wanted to kind of work together. And so that was really interesting. Um, And so that... Through that, around 2012, I started writing about that um, on churchtherapy.com, and that website is now kind of the face of a nonprofit I'll talk about in a minute, but um, there's still a blog tab on there, and people can read um, all the different blogs that I've written about the church therapy model, but essentially I started writing and giving language to what what I labeled the church therapy model, and I kind of have two versions of it, so the first one is kind of the original... Um, way that I described kind of having a licensed counselor come in onto church staff, um, working in this collaborative way with the pastors, and really um, seeing that when you're providing counseling, professional, clinical, mental health counseling in the church setting, mm-hmm. that it really opens the door for people um, to access services, um, and it also really helps change the culture around mental health in the church. So people just start really feeling very normal about seeking counseling and about mental health issues. It gets mentioned in sermons and kind of in the day-to-day conversation in within the church culture. And so it really opens up a door. It also opened up a door for um, training and consultation with the pastors when they're facing mental health challenges and things like that. And so it really, really freed up the pastor's time Mm. Um, as well as sometimes people say, well, how does, you know, gee, my church can't afford to hire a counselor. And I say, well, my church has never paid me except for maybe a Christmas bonus or something for, a, you know, a gift or something like that. But ultimately, um, I've been funded through insurance. And so my funding doesn't come out of church dollars. It's always been a self-funding um, service. And so, um, so that was kind of the original version of it. And that is still actually what I'm doing at my church. Um, but my church therapy 2.0, which I, I haven't created an infographic quite for that um, entirely, although people would see it if they went to the um, front page of, of the website. It's really this nonprofit that I started. Um, along the way, as I started writing 
I started um, connecting with Gordon Conwell students. I, I'm in Massachusetts, and Gordon Conwell Seminary is where I got my master's in counseling. And so um, I was connected there and started supervising some of the students. Um, we established a um, counseling service for students at North Point Bible College um, that they had no mental health services on their campus. And so we said, why don't we come in and have some, some interns provide some free counseling? And so we did that. Um, and that, along with a couple of other things that were going on in churches, really we needed an umbrella to kind of cover all of it. So I, I founded a nonprofit that basically um, places counseling, master's level counseling interns into churches so we have multiple sites now, and we're growing um, to add more church sites now. Um, and so they serve out their internships for a year in a church setting. I provide the clinical supervision, and we follow all of the different state regulations so that they're working towards licensure. Um, and then, um, yeah, so more people in more churches are getting really low-cost counseling now. That, that there is a subscription fee that the churches pay but they have a guaranteed number of sessions. So there's no wait time. There's no insurance to figure out. It's just, you know, immediately people can get in to be seen. So it's really accessible. And the client fees are less than what they would pay for a copay if they used insurance. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That sounds really, really amazing because so many people need access to therapy, um, counselling. And often can't afford it and um and also i think like you say the it, it takes a lot of the burden off the pastors as well because often they have to do that and carry that all themselves and that's a big weight to carry for an entire congregation so yeah it's a really great vision i love that um and uh yeah i mean it's really, I mean, it's, it's something, it sounds like something that the, the church really needs. Um, and more and more, in fact, because of the rise in mental health issues, mental mental illness um, in our culture. It, it, it's, and, and it's something that the church has traditionally done badly. So, um, Sometimes, often, yeah. That's, I mean, I think that's one of the things that a lot of the counselors, especially who are training in Christian seminaries or grad programs, I think they a lot of times are drawn into that because they've seen that there needs to be more or that the church has, has done poorly at times in this issue. I know that was certainly true for me. That's definitely what drove me to um, seek this you know, calling, basically. And so, um, yeah, I think I was really feeling on the other end of it that there were counseling students who were being trained and, you know, prepared to do clinical work that really couldn't, there's no jobs for them in the church. Like, you can't look up on a job listing, like, church hiring a counselor. Like, there, there isn't, it doesn't exist. And so um, I felt like as I went through school and then subsequently watching other students go through school, I saw basically people come in with a desire to work within the church and help the church, serve the church not find any inlet, and then go find jobs elsewhere. And a lot of them, you know, sometimes start private practices, and sometimes maybe half the time they actually advertise as a Christian practice, maybe even a little less than half the time. Um, so a lot of them are seeing, you know, kind of a mix of Christian and non-Christian clients, which is it's fine. I mean, it's up to them kind of how they want to do that. But ultimately, 
if they had a heart for kind of working within the church population mm. and meeting those and then they just couldn't find a way to do it, that's the student those are the students that I'm working with now. So I am finding all of those ones, at least at Glen Conwell right now, who are um, really interested in doing that work yeah. and then really showing them that it's possible. So I think this is a bigger vision too, not just for, you know, my nonprofit, but for kind of a way that we can help um, students who who have that vision to see that it's possible. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And what I mean, what was your kind of experience then that that led you into kind of starting this up? Yeah, well, I um, was raised in a church that practiced um, biblical counseling, also known as musetic counseling. Right. Um, Jim Adams um, kind of founded that movement. And um, so it's kind of odd that this conversation about counseling in the church setting has been really part of my whole life. It's something I've always been aware of. I didn't really even think that it was odd that I wanted to kind of be a counselor in a church setting because I just saw, okay, people come to the church, they're looking for counseling. I wasn't real impressed with the results of the new set of counseling and certainly even as an adolescent began to see ways in which I felt like it was at times harmful um, to people um, because of its kind of confrontational and sin-focused kind mm. of emphasis. Uh, I didn't feel like it was really assessing people accurately. Um, and that was just my observation as a, as a teenager. So, you know, I, I can only mm. imagine if I was aware of really the ins and outs of the situation, what I might have thought, especially now, looking, you know, looking back, of course. But um, so I really said, you know, this is me at 16 and 17. I went off to, to Wheaton College in Illinois, and I was, I was like, okay, I want to be a counselor in a church, but I just want to, like, somehow do it better. And that's really <laughs> all I knew. I, I started off my first semester, made, like, declaring a major in um, Christian ministries because that's what I thought. I, I just, that's what I thought of it as. And thankfully, uh, my advisor, you know, heard my kind of, vision which was an early version of this church therapy thing and she said I think you ought to major in psychology and so I looked into that I had taken one intro to psych course in high school um, but other than that I really didn't connect the dots with that and a counseling path hmm. um, and so as I looked at the psych major and just kind of realized like the path towards counseling and licensure that just was like the most amazing discovery to me and then learning at Wheaton and, you know, talking about integration of faith and psychology and counseling and all that was like, it was like I had found the thing I had been so sure we could accomplish. And I was being trained by like, now I realize I didn't fully appreciate at the time that people who were training me were like the textbook writer, hmm. you know, uh, Jones, Button, McGray, you know, all of these guys. Um, I never had McMinn, but he's over there. You know, all of these really well-known names in the in the Christian counseling world um, were there, you know. And so it was just so, such a great moment for me to shift course and realize, okay, this is possible. Um, and actually, the thing I was most surprised about when I started doing counseling in the church setting was the backlash that I got from other Christian counselors. Because wow. their reaction to the harm that the church has done was really to leave the church and say counseling has to be separate from the church. You should not be in there. You'll probably lose your license at some point, you know, and they, they just only saw kind of the risks or the downsides. Um, and ultimately, I think 
you'll find this in, in the blog writing that I've done, I spent a lot of time writing about ethics and boundaries and just the mm. ways that an adaptive kind of approach. Um, I use, I kind of borrow from like wraparound services approaches and um, like school-based settings and home-based settings. There are lots of different kinds of settings that counseling happens in. And so this is really kind of like being embedded in a place Almost another example is like um, employee assistance programs, right, where you have a counselor kind of in a big company and that's who you go to when you have a problem. Yeah. So it's borrowing from all these models that exist, but the Christian counselors have been over the years the most vocal. Well, that and the biblical counselors, they, they really don't like me being in the church at all. But um, the, the Christian counselors are like, get out, run, go start a private practice and Never talk to a pastor again. You know, I mean, sometimes it's, it's strong, their reaction. Yeah, wow. Whew. Sadly, it doesn't surprise me, though. That's the thing. That reaction by some people. Having yeah. been in that kind of church, you know, um, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. Very sad, though. Um, yeah. I mean, like, in your experience, like, what, what if... What has the, done, the church done well in, in regards to mental health? And in what areas does it, do you think it needs to to improve in how it deals with it? Yeah, I mean, I think just in the last 10 years alone, the church has grown so much around mental health awareness, decreasing stigma. I think you have so many pastors that are totally open to counseling. They've gone to counseling themselves. They're referring people to counseling regularly. Um, and so I, I think that has all grown a lot. And I think we would not have been having this same conversation certainly 20 years ago, definitely not 30 years ago. Um, and so definitely. I think there's leaps and bounds, you know, in terms of just the normalizing um, and certainly, you know, social media, things like Twitter and stuff where we all, you know, are advocates for Christian mental health. Um, I think that's been huge. I think there's definitely an acknowledgement that, um, pastors, you know, aren't immune to these things. So that's actually an area I'm moving into a little bit more is pastors' mental health directly and kind of now that we've gotten the congregations a little bit more open to counseling, let's, let's make sure the pastors are getting help too. Um, but, yeah, I think that's, that's been great. There's a lot of churches that have started counseling centers or have, you know, referral lists and things like that. I think in terms of the things they haven't always done well, um, you know, there's still a lot of um, lingo, I guess, for lack of a better term, that gets thrown mm. around. Um, you know, clinical language. You know, when people say depression or anxiety, for example, you know, they may not mean clinically. Mm. Um, but I think it gets mixed around with, like, you know, we should. The Bible tells us not to be anxious and just, you know, pray more, trust God harder, kind of language. I think even for people, even for counselors sometimes who know better or pastors who are totally on board with mental health stuff, still we have some of those underlying stigmatizing messages that we just need to kind of separate out our language a little better. So I yeah. think we need to keep being careful on. Um, and I think really just people understanding more about mental illness. I wrote a, a book called On Edge, Mental Illness in the Christian Context, and it goes through specific questions that I've been asked as a counselor. So, you know, should Christians take 
uh, psychotropic medications or, you know, how can I, you know, be a Christian if I'm depressed? You know, kind of every chapter is a question, basically, and I go through um, a, a real case example and then a re- my response as a counselor. Um, and so that, that actually, uh, several people started using that book in their churches to do like a Sunday school class or a small group. Yeah. Um, and so I developed a curriculum for that to go along with it. So there's a leader's guide now too. So it's an eight-week small group, basically stigma reduction measure to just help educate people um, around, you know, what these illnesses are and how to understand them better and what to do. Um, so I think that that's, you know, a resource that's out there. But there's a lot to train congregations on really how to be in it for the long haul with people because I think that's the hard part. Like, why aren't you getting better? Sometimes that we fail on that yeah yeah and um, of those questions in that book what do you think was the, what do you think was the one that resonated with most people and what was the what was your answer to it as well mm-hmm. yeah now you're asking me to remember all the chapters off the top of my head but, uh, <laughs> so the medication one is a big one really really big one lots of people aren't sure whether or not it is kind of the either the cop-out or the weak approach or the lack of faith answer to take medication for something like depression or anxiety because they feel like it's something they should be able to get under control themselves. Hmm. Um, And so I think that is a big one. So in that case example, I describe um, one of my clients who had been wrestling with that question um, had a depression that wasn't chronic, but, you know, certainly was around for probably about six months to a year, excuse me, before she started um, really considering medication. Mm. And, and some people are surprised to realize that you are you can have a clinical depressive episode after only two weeks of symptoms that are more days than not. So, you know, if you look at the actual clusters of symptoms, you know, more of us have probably had a clinical depressive episode than, than realize it. But when it persists for, you know, months at a time or even goes on for six months or a year, you know, it's really time to say, okay, does your body need a little bit of a reset button? And that's what medication can do. And so for her, it wasn't something that I thought she'd have to be on forever. You know, a lot of people wonder, like, okay, once I start this, now I'm going to get hooked and I won't be able to get off. And you know, an antidepressant is not an addictive substance. It's not something you can get psychologically hooked on. It's like another any other medication. You taper up and then you taper down and you can get off of it. Um, and so she was on uh, medication for about a year. Um, and then she, with her doctor's oversight, started tapering off it again. Um, and just very slowly, you know, we watched for any symptoms that might return. And then she was off of it for years um, after she, <laughs> this is a post-book update, after she had uh, her second child, she went back on for another brief period of time due to postpartum symptoms she was having. But that time she was much quicker to go back on it and, um, you know, and then know that she could come back off it again. So it's a lot less scary than people maybe imagine in their minds because I think people picture, like, mental hospitals of from, like, the 60s and 70s and, like, drugs that are really, like, dope you out kinds of stuff, Haldol or whatever, you know, and that's really not what they're prescribing these days for a basic depressive episode. So um, it's that kind of information that I think the church really needs to hear because people are pretty open once they learn about some things. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. Um, It's amazing to me that the medication issue is such a big 
question still because the, the medication thing issue as I remember when I was in kind of when I was in the evangelical church it was like some people were questioning medication for illness you know and it's which was bad which was kind of bad enough and then like but for mental illness you know it's I guess this is my perspective my own story kind of coming through but it's it never it never seemed anything but obvious to me that you should take medication you could if you're if you're ill and feel whether that's physically or mentally ill if you have an illness a diagnosis then medication is perfectly fine because it's even if you want to approach it from a Christian point of view and saying like God made everything so God made people who could God made all the elements that they they put into medication he made he made people's brains to be able to figure out medication you know so you can even get around the old arguments you know um struggle with the the fact that it's um subjectively diagnosed you know if we had a blood test like you know cholesterol you take this cholesterol medication yeah sure yeah i think depression you know really it's on you can have a mild depression um or you can have severe depression you can have chronic depression or a single episode you know and so i think um that's true yeah that makes it harder for people to say okay how bad is bad enough and i think People don't show up to a counselor's door before they're at the bad enough stage. And so by then, it probably would have really been helped with medication months or years before that. But they really didn't have anyone to help them assess that or give them information about what the medications are like. And so I think that's just part of the, the, the stigma, right, of, you know, well, I don't want to be that bad. You know, and I think pastors particularly have that even more strongly on that self stigma that just says, you know, it's a weakness or I don't want to be that bad mm. off. But one thing I do talk about in the book is that, um, you know, from my perspective, we know that the kingdom of God, you know, in heaven, there's no disorder, disease, you know, grief, tears, any of that stuff. And so, you know, it's very clear to me that God is very interested in health and healing and us being well, and he's restoring us to that, right? So, on a, from an earthly perspective, any steps that we take towards health and wellness, whether that's taking medication or exercise or just treating our bodies well, um, whatever that is, to me, that's a very spiritual act of saying, not I don't trust God, so I'm going to lean on medication or something like that, but I do trust God and I want to be closer to the the healthy version that, you know, he's going to restore me to. And so, you know, obviously... Um, you know, to me, it's, it's Satan that brings destruction and chaos into our world. And so when we fight back on that with mm. any tool um, that brings us health, I think that's absolutely a step towards God. Um, so that's the way I often talk to people about it as well. Yeah, that's 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 true. That's very, very true. And yeah, it's, it is difficult because, you, because, because yeah, you're, you're, the diagnosis is a bit more unclear. You know, because yeah. you can have depressive episodes, like you say, and not have an official diagnosis. Um, yeah, and yeah, you're absolutely right about that. Um, yeah, and it's. I mean, how is how has doing all this work impacted your own journey and your own your own mental health as well? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I think I, there's 
certainly like the, the positives and the negatives. So in terms of the positives, I often say to my uh, the, the students that I supervise, you know, that they're signing up to be in therapy the rest of their lives. And so that's going to actually impact them far more than even their clients. You know, I, I feel like I've, I've been in therapy every day of my life now for, you know, since 2005. So it's been almost 15 years of really sitting with the things that I'm helping people with all the time, you know. And so I've always been a practice what you preach kind of person. So I think it's really driven me towards consistency in my own self-care and just reflecting on the stuff that comes up in me. Um, I think if you're if you're doing good counseling work, then you're sitting with the stuff that's arising up in yourself all the time. Um, and so, and and certainly, I've been to counseling on and off at various points, and I've needed it as well. So, to me, it's really made my own mental health kind of front and center. On the downside, it certainly um, this is one of the reasons why I kind of. Um, started a nonprofit and moved a little bit more towards kind of placing people in churches. You know, being on staff and in ministry, my husband's one of the pastors there as well, um, you know, has certainly its, its toll. And the, the role that I have as counselor on staff at a church, I have all of the limitations that pastors have, plus all the limitations that counselors have. And so it's a very narrow role that I can be in in my church. Um, which is a great role, and I love that role, and I'm called to that role, but it can be difficult. I have to work really hard to make, make sure that my friendships are elsewhere and my, you know, my, my support systems are in place. And so I think that's been, you know, a little bit harder emotionally sometimes to just kind of, you know, have to sit out of some things just because of my role. I can't get too close to people in certain ways. So, yeah, yeah. That can be hard. yeah, I'm sure, and I mean, it, yeah, I have all. I always have so much respect for people who work with people working the kind of role that you do, or therapists, counsellors, um, even spiritual directors, anyone, pastors, who, anyone who works with people with mental illness, mm-hmm. and has to hear maybe traumatic stories and has to hear painful stories, um, because yeah, it's really important to protect yourself and have a good network around you and have a therapist or counsellor of your own and how all of that in place before you start doing uh, working with other people who've got those those problems because it's it's not easy to to hear that to hear that all the time right yeah the secondary trauma rates of counsellors and pastors is, is certainly being studied and an important consideration for sure I haven't found that to be quite as difficult as some of just the, the boundary issues and role restrictions in the very unique kind of work that I have to do because I have to maintain that while at the same time really pioneering a lot of this stuff by myself, um, which is why I now I'm reaching towards the end of, of my doctoral um, program at Regent University um, in counselor education and supervision, but that was one of the drivers into why I went to get that degree you know we have a cohort and we're you know growing together and so that was really important for me I kind of needed more counselors around me and people who could kind of understand the church therapy model and support me in it and explore it with me um, mentors supervisors and my cohort as opposed to just having a some kind of <laughs> vitriolic reaction to it on Twitter you know I mean really yeah. being able 
partner with people. Um, and that's where founding that nonprofit and having a board and working with students, like, really gave me a lot of life because I was doing this alone for a long time. Hmm. Yeah. And it's really great work. I mean, it's such important work and we need more of this you know i mean i myself i'm more in a, i'm kind of in a contemplative spiritual community rather than a traditional church now um still very much a jesus centered community it's in we meet in an old in an old anglican church um but um it's different from um from what i from what i grew up with which is kind of traditional church and evangelical church and all of that um but but i know that um, there are a lot of traditional churches who are embracing this more and more and this and talking about this more which is which is really really good yeah for sure um so one thing that we've been focusing on that i've been focusing on on this podcast for for a while is grief and exploring grief and obviously in what you do um you all have encountered people who are grieving various things it may not be just losing a loved one it may be the end of a relationship it may be something else losing a job um that kind of thing um what are you all kind of what have you seen as in terms of positive ways of dealing with grief and negative ones i mean what would you kind of call a positive way of processing grief yeah i mean i think that one of the things um is being able to, like you said, identify that there is there are all types types of grief. So it's not just someone dies and I'm grieving, but there's just so many different mm. kinds of losses. So there's a book called Ambiguous Loss by um, Pauline Boss, and she writes about the kinds of grief that comes from um, things like moving away and losing touch with friends or relatives. Now, that's a little bit less likely now that we have the Internet and all that stuff, but she describes research on immigrants that came to America and really you know, left their families behind and they never knew if they would see them again and they might write letters or you know, kind of have this lingering hope that like one day maybe they would see them again, but they might not, and so you're just left with this in-between question and you don't really know how to grieve that. Um, and, and sometimes, yeah, it can be the end of a, a job or loss of a pet or, you know, all kinds of things that maybe mm. the world doesn't always give us permission to grieve about. And maybe after we've told our closest friends one or two or three times, you know, how we're feeling about it, that's pretty much all they want to hear a lot of the time, unless you really have a compassionate friend. You know, we, I think sometimes we know that we get sick of talking about it sometimes, but yet we still feel like we need to. Yeah. And, but yet, who do we turn to after we feel like we've kind of exhausted our friends um, on something that, you know, especially if it's not a death, they might think, you know, gee, we should really be moving on already. Or, or in a death situation, after about a year, people start kind of wondering, you know, what, when are you going to kind of quote, get over this type of idea? I think even some passionate people really struggle with the long, long-term journey of what grief is and that it can't be kind of turned on or off. Um, and so I think that, you know, it, it's healthy to give yourself permission to, to grieve whatever it is that's bringing you grief, to not judge that as kind of okay or not okay, but it is what it is. And so accepting that I think is really important. 
Um, and then just knowing that it comes in waves is so important. I think, oh. you, you know, yeah. you feel like, okay, like I'm feeling better. And you have a, a little stretch where you feel some relief and then something, whether there's a trigger you can identify or not, just crashes down again. Um, and so I've, I've seen a lot of really great quotes about um, just kind of learning to, to swim instead of drown. And that's really, I think, the key is to ride the waves a little bit and actually to embrace them. One of the best things I ever did, and I, I had a loss that was much more in the ambiguous category, you know, related to a friendship issue. And, and that was really hard to talk about because it was kind of so ambiguous for so long. Um, and it was unclear how it was going to resolve or if it was going to resolve. And so in that, I had a, um, a mentor advise me to write a letter to grief. And so I did that. Actually, you know what? That might be in Pauline Boss's book, Ambiguous Loss. I'm not sure which, who gave me the idea now that I say it out loud. But, um, but I wrote this letter to grief, and then I, I had grief write back to me. And so I just wrote a letter back to myself as if it was from grief. And I was really surprised by what came out in that process because mm-hmm. basically the letter back to, you know, to me from grief was basically, I know that you want to get rid of me, but I'm really bringing something into your life that's important. And if you, if you can embrace me as a companion on your journey, I, I have a lot actually to offer you. And I won't be here in the same way, always, forever. You know, I'll change over time, but I will be here for you. And actually, this is what keeps something alive in you, even though you wish that I would be gone. You know, and so it was a really fascinating exercise to do. um, And it taught me a lot about the ways that grief gives us something. The importance of really just embracing even suffering. In a spiritual journey. Yeah, I never thought about that before. Grief keeps something alive in you, or keeps someone alive in a right. way. Yeah. Like it's how you remember your loved one, or your friend, or your right. or partner, or whatever. Um, yeah, that's actually I never thought of it like that before. Um, I mean, I lost a parent um, about twenty years ago. That was kind of my biggest experience of grief. Um, it's one of the reasons I, I talk about it a lot now. It's, it's because of that, and and you're right actually in a sense because without grief I wouldn't, without processing grief and having grief, I wouldn't have got to a healthy place of relationship with my mother mm-hmm. since she's yeah. gone, um, and have the joy that I have now when I think of her, and um, and grief helped me do that. I mean, healthy grief, not unhealthy right. grief. Um, so you're right. That's really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think this idea of embracing grief as kind of a companion or a friend gives you that space. Whereas when we when we treat grief as the enemy, then it's like we're constantly attacking ourselves, and that's when I think grief turns unhealthy. When we are either judging ourselves or angry with ourselves for the fact that grief is there. Or we just turn to like just numbing, you know, self-destructive numbing kinds of things, whether that's alcohol or drugs or food or shopping or internet or whatever it is that just kind of turns it off. You know, it's like taking grief and duct taping it to a chair and (laughs) duct taping his mouth shut, you know, like we take it hostage 
Um, and we, we can't we can't really move on that way or move forward, I should say, that way. And so, yeah, interesting to think about. Yeah, and it is a really important important thing. Like you say, when when we, when we process it badly, it can lead into into addictions and um, bad habits and, and even kind of religious certainty in a way for me one of, one of the unhealthy ways I processed grief was religious certainty uh, and I thought it was I didn't I thought it wasn't religious certainty um, I thought it I thought I'd left that behind and then it was just a different a different form of it um, one which kind of said okay you can question things you can doubt things you can you can have mystery and all of that kind of thing but you still have structure which unhealthy structure kind of building a structure around your pain rather than building a structure into your pain um and we just need to be yeah it's really important when we grieve that we do it properly um that we do it in a healthy way which allows us to get free so it doesn't control us for sure for sure yeah one thing i think you find in church a lot is um a concept called spiritual bypass and that's really this idea that we kind of use spiritual niceties to kind of make it all okay like well she's in a better place now or you know this all happened for a reason or you know those kinds of things or just trust god he'll make it okay you know all that kind of stuff that we tell people really well-meaning people say these things it's not that they're trying to be dismissive of pain but it is dismissive of pain and so i think it's important for us not to do that to ourselves, not to do that to other people, and kind of using spiritual language as a, as a bypass or a way around um, feeling emotion and working through it. Pain is not only okay, it's good. It's part of what deepens us spiritually. Um, and at least here in America, we, we want to numb all kinds of pain and make ourselves feel great only. And, you know, we, we kind of um, really view suffering as all bad. And I think that that's just not what the Bible teaches. Um, so it's important for us as Christians not to give that message to ourselves or each other. That's right. That's absolutely right, yeah. And pain is, well, in a physical sense, pain is our body trying to tell us something's wrong. Right, right. So without, if we didn't have pain, we would probably die a lot sooner <laughs> because we wouldn't know something is wrong. You know, like... If you don't have any symptoms of illness, you could just die of that illness and you would never have known you were ill. Um, There's a book called The Gift of Pain by... uh, Philip Yancey wrote it with... um, I forget his first name, but Brand, Dr. Brand. He was a medical missionary for a long time working with leprosy patients. And he writes all about how important pain is and and basically in leprosy you lose um, some of your nerve feeling and so you don't feel pain. And so he discovered all these things about how their injuries were really, people thought it was like eating away at their flesh, but it wasn't. It was just they couldn't feel pain to stop themselves from continually re-injuring themselves. It's a fascinating book. So that's, that's more of the medical focus, but it's an interesting application as well to grief and emotional pain. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, definitely recommend that for sure. So... Going back to like church therapy, what is what is your real hope for 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 for, for the work that you're doing and you know the nonprofit that you have right now? What, what, what do you really want to where do you want to see it go? Yeah, well, um, right now you know we're operating in Massachusetts and we have a few sites here. Ultimately, you know, I have people contact me. I just had a pastor in Texas email me today um, asking more questions, so I, I get random 
inquiries all the time. And ultimately, I'm working on doing more networking around with other um, Christian graduate programs or seminaries that have counseling programs um, to, to basically, I think, around where those seminaries or, or schools are, if we identify um, supervisors and you know program directors who like this idea, and then there's pastors in the area who are interested. So sometimes I get interest from pastors, sometimes I get interest from counselors, but linking them, right? So we, I would love to see this nonprofit operating in many of the states, um, you know, because there's a lot of states, especially through the South and Midwest, that have um, Christian schools and churches that would be very open to having counselors come in there. Um, and so it's really, I would tell people, you have three ingredients for this to work. I've got all the infrastructure and the kind of, um, you know, the, the way that we do things, the policy manuals and the, you know, procedural things. Um, but we have to have a student, a clinical supervisor, and a pastor who's on board. And so really that's, those are the key ingredients. I can't supervise outside of any states that I'm licensed in. So right now I'm just licensed in Massachusetts. But as we build more clinical supervisors who are licensed in other states, um, that really opens the doors for us. Awesome. That's so good. So good, so good. Yeah, really, it's really, really exciting to see this happening and um, to see more, more churches embracing this kind of thing because it's just so important. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. The other thing with my dissertation, mm. is, um, as I said, I'm and so that's another area of focus for me. Um, aside from, you know, the the nonprofit, really just adding to the work that some have already been doing around pastors' mental health. <coughs> yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, because actually that's right. Pastors' mental health is just as important um, as, um, you know, as, <laughs> as everyone else is because the pastors are doing the, the job of leading the church. So you know, it's important that they're... Well, it's important that they're modelling it for everybody else, but also that, um, that, that their, their mental health is taken care of as well. So... Um, yeah. So, um, people can where, so people can find, where can people find find out about all all the work that you do and connect with you? Yeah, probably the easiest is is to look at churchtherapy.com. So that's the website where you see um, more of how the nonprofit runs. You see my blog tab. You see. Um, I don't think my books are on that one um, because it's a nonprofit. But um, I also have another website. Um, I write daily devotionals. Excuse me, my voice is froggy for a minute here. Um, I write daily devotionals at freedomfortoday.com, and that is often kind of has a mental health, emotional health focus as well. And you can see all of my books on that website. Um, follow me on Twitter at Church Therapist. Um, I'm on LinkedIn. You can look me up. I think that's pretty much the ways. I'm I really don't do a lot with Facebook, so people try to look me up there. It's kind of just my where I post kids, the kids pictures for the grandmas, you know, but, um, Twitter, LinkedIn, and, and my, my two websites, definitely, for sure. Awesome. Awesome. That is so great. Um, well, thank you for coming on and, and sharing about this. It's really, really encouraging and, yeah, really positive. Good. Well, thanks so much for having me. I had a great conversation. Enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah, it was fantastic. Yeah. And, um, yeah, get in touch with um, with Kristen and find out more of her work and definitely definitely worth a look so um thanks everyone for listening um take care and we'll talk again soon